Alan, you know that explanation of Genesis chapter 1 in, in relation to Psalm 137, that, that context of the exile really makes Genesis 1 alive for me. You know, because very often when, when I've heard Christians speaking about that particular text, their, their arguments are about evolution and creation. And, you know, that doesn't seem to edify or build anything up. Whereas this really gives me such tremendous a hope, a God who who brings order in chaos and, and hope in the midst of, of despair. So just that little element of, of context really brought a new layer to the mm. text for me. Have you got any other examples that, that you can share with us? I love your, your word there, layer, that there are different layers in a text, and that's important. This is not changing the meaning of Genesis chapter 1. It is offering a, a different layer. So, for example, here in the studio, I've got a picture for you, Dion. What, what do you see in this picture? If you had to just look at this picture literally, give me a literal interpretation of this picture. Well, I'm looking at a picture of, of, of a stream. It's water flowing and there's some rocks. And on the side of the stream, there are a couple of trees and, and you know, a, a big blue sky. Right. That's a, that's a literal interpretation of that. Now, can I give you some context for this picture? Yeah. What would happen if I, if I had to tell you that this picture was on the mantelpiece of a home and it's the exact place where a young man proposed to a young woman to get married? What does the picture now mean? Yeah, gee, well, it's more than just water and stones. Now it's a, a very special place. You know, it makes me smile when I think about that. Right. Now, what happens if I had to tell you that that picture is still on one of their mantelpieces, but they're no longer married? Sure. They yeah, got that, divorced. That adds a, another layer. You know, it speaks a little bit more of the meaning and the importance for the person on whose mantelpiece it is. It's the same picture. And you have shared three different meanings, as I've explained context. The first, I gave you no context, and you just told me what you saw. Then I gave you context of, of a marriage, and then I gave you context of a divorce, and you saw different things in the painting. The exact same with Genesis chapter 1. If we look at it, just a literal, as we look at it, what do we learn? God is the creator. Beautiful. That's lovely. It's true. God mm. is the creator. Mm. But when we place it in context... That meaning does, is not erased, it's enhanced. What is the meaning now when we read it or hear it from exile? That God is a God who brings newness out of loss, out of loss. And that's the beautiful meaning of it. So I want to offer, um, when we delve into context, Dion, the, the text is not erased. Original meanings are not erased, they are enhanced. And as you said, there are different layers of the text. I remember when we started off with the series, one of the, the little images you shared with us was that of a parent measuring their child's height, you know, and saying, when your child's three, you, you peg them. And eventually when they get to 16 and you've got, you know, 10 or so things on the wall, you don't rub out the one at the bottom. It, it, it's not less important. It's just different. It, it has a different association, a different meaning. Absolutely. Now, if we look at that Genesis chapter 1 and we were comparing it with the Psalm uh, 130, 137, we saw that in, in, in chapter 1, for example, the, the Hebrew word used for God is Elohim, which we find used in Psalm 137. When we get to, um, and that was used around about the 5th century, that was during the time of, of exile. 
When we get to Genesis chapter 3, which we're going to look at more um, deeply in the next segment, Genesis chapter 3, the, the, the word for, for God is, is Yahweh. Now, I want to say something interesting about this word. We, we spell it with two vowels, the A and the E in it, just to enable us to pronounce the word. But in actual fact, in Hebrew, it's just four letters without the, the vowels. In other words, it's, Im, it's impossible to pronounce Yahweh. All right. And there's such beautiful insight into that. Number one, the name of God is so holy that we can't even you know, speak it. Number two, if you just say those letters together, it will sound like this. <sighs> now, I don't know if the listeners can appreciate that, but what I'm doing is just simply breathing out. Mm. And so God is the great breath mm. that when you and I are breathing, whether we're conscious of it or not, we are dependent on God. And it reminds me of that beautiful scripture uh, of Paul when he says we live and move and have our being in God. So that word of God was used in Genesis chapter 3. And that, that word of God was used from the 9th century to the 12th century before Christ. So it's separated by many, many hundred years. And I'm hoping that in the next segment we can look at that uh, more deeply. Now, Alan, that's a very important thing because um, very often when we when we engage with a text at that level and we just have the, the courage to try and find out one or two additional things, whether it's going to a, a commentary or, you know, searching for, for that particular text on the Internet and, and getting some background on it, that date stuff, it just gives us that extra little insight. So before we move to the next segment, as we wrap up this one, Genesis chapter 1. Um, I want to invite the listeners to see it as a sermon, that if the listeners out there are feeling that they've lost everything, including their faith, if they think that God has gone missing, I want them to trust that God is a God who right in the beginning creates stuff out of nothing. God doesn't need any stuff to create stuff out of. God can create out of nothing. And finally, to remember that they're born in the beautiful image of God. They are not mud. Are you stirred by this message? Then get in touch with us and send us a text to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. For more audio and information on this series, please visit www.mannerandmercy.org. DNA, DNA, DNA with Dion and Alan. Ellen, I wonder if you don't want to pick up where you left off in the last segment and uh, tell us a little bit more about, you know, we've been talking Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Tell us a little bit more about Genesis 3. I'm, I'm eager to hear how context can help us to see this passage differently. Right. Well, again, Genesis chapter 1, we offered then as a sermon by a preacher trying to get the choir to sing again because they weren't singing the Lord's song in a, in a, foreign, in a foreign land. Genesis chapter 3, I want to offer Dion as a, a parable, as a parable. Mm -hmm. Some of the old spiritual leaders, the, the shaman of original peoples, like aboriginal peoples, um, native Indians, would sometimes begin their storytelling around a fire with these words. Now, I don't know if it happened this way or not, but I know it's true. Hmm. And I want to offer that as an introduction into the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. I don't know if it happened that way or not, but I know it's true. Can I tell a story that maybe can draw that point out? Yes, please. There's a, there's a movie called Big Fish. It's a, it's a movie 
that includes a, a relationship between a father and a son. And the father just tells stories. Doesn't matter what you ask him, he tells it. He's got a story for everything. And the recurring question that the child asks the father is, Dad, tell me what happened on the day I was born. And he says, well, on the day you were born, I went fishing. And I went down to that lake. You know the lake. And uh, in this lake, there was this one fish that was just huge that everyone came to try and catch. But some fish are blessed with more luck or more grace than others. And no one ever caught the big fish until I went fishing on, your bir- on the day you were born. And I threw in the line and waited and waited. And then there was this almighty bite. And I wrestled for about two and a half hours. And son, finally, I hooked the big fish and brought it in. And for a little while, the child bought that. But as the child grew older, the child was saying, now, come on, tell me the truth. What really happened? And the father would just keep on repeating that story till finally, at the end of the the father's life, he's still telling the story. And the son gets so upset with him. He says, but I want the truth. And he walks out and he bumps into the family physician, the doctor. And the doctor says, he's still asking that question. Why didn't you ask me? I was there. You were there? Yes, I brought you into the world. He says, well, tell me what happened. Well, I got a call and your, your mother came in. A friend brought her. Your dad wasn't around, but it wouldn't have made much of a difference because, well, in those days, fathers weren't allowed in the maternity ward. And uh, it took about two and a half hours of labor. And out you popped. And there you were. Uh, bright little boy. Now, then the physician asked him the question, which version of your birth do you prefer? The one that I've just told you, which is factual, or the one that your father has told you, which I want to suggest is truthful. Hmm. Now, very importantly, truth is larger than fact. When we try and explain something really, really deep and meaningful, sometimes the facts are not big enough. So we have to tell stories to get to the truth. But sometimes those stories are not factual. Now, we've been so influenced by what we call the Enlightenment, uh, Western philosophy, Eastern philosophy that has moved away from storytelling, that we've reduced truth to fact. If it's truthful, it must be factual. But when you tell someone you love them, when you tell someone that they're beautiful, you tell stories. You don't speak factually. You say, you're as beautiful as a rose. No one takes that literally. It's not factually correct, but it's true. I may say you're the most beautiful person in all the world. That's not a fact, but it's true. It's speaking the truth of my heart. So Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam, Eve, the snake in the garden, is true. It's true, but I don't know if it happened that way factually. Now, when we can separate truth and fact, we can really plumb the depths of this incredible parable that is true. Now, what is it true about? It's true about God. We learn the truth about God from this parable. We also learn the truth about human beings. The truth about God? What are some of the things that you learned from that that parable? God in creating this this Garden of Eden. What do you learn? That God provides for us and gives us this rich and plentiful garden. Right. God gives us in abundance. What do we learn about human beings? We are never satisfied. That's it. We're not even satisfied in paradise. We always want more. God says, you can have from all of this that I've created except one tree in the center, which may be a way of saying, keep me at the center. Don't lose me at the center. Mm. Remember that all of this has been a gift from me to you and trust me for, for my provision. 
the snake comes along, all right, and says, I've heard you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees. Now, that was a lie. What does that lie do? The lie makes you and I doubt whether God will lovingly, generously, abundantly provide for us. So now, if I can't rely on God, who have I got left to rely on? Myself. And that's the fall. So that is true. You see how Genesis chapter 3 is true? It's true about God's love and generous and abundance. But it's also true about our human condition that's never satisfied with what we have, that we listen to the lies of the snake. Have you ever, have you ever come across a snake that talks? Never. That's right. But it's true. Snakes don't talk, but I hear them speak. <laughs> Tell me about that. I hear them speak. The other day I, I drive up to the, the traffic light in my car, and next to me there's this 4 by 4 that pulls up next to it. Now, we know that 4 by 4s don't talk. That's right. But I heard it speak. Come on, Alan. Yeah, tell me about it that. It said, if you get into me, you'll feel like a real man. <laughs> okay. Just, just buy one of me and you'll feel like a real man. The other day I was driving through this neighborhood. Bricks and mortar don't talk, but I heard it speak. It said, if you move into this area, you'll feel safe and secure. Sometimes when you're walking through a mall, you look in and you see a pretty dress we know that material doesn't talk, but we hear it speak. It says, slip into me, honey, and you're going to feel slim. You're going to look thin. You're going to feel like a million dollars. Can you see? The snake is anything and everything that gets us to doubt God's loving, generous provision for our life. So we start trusting in other things. Listen to more teachings and discussions at www.mannerandmercy.org or connect with us by texting a message to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. DNA, DNA, DNA with Dion and Alan. Alan, we've uh, been talking about the creation story in uh, the first three chapters of, of Genesis, and uh, you've been unpacking some of the layers of that story and uh, helping us to understand how we can read the Bible. And I'm sure there are many more layers to, to that particular narrative in the Bible. I don't know if you want to maybe share one or two other insights that can help us to, to understand Genesis 1 to 3 and also the principles of, of reading the Bible. Thanks, Dion. There is another layer that we can look at. The Genesis creation story is probably a response to another creation story doing the rounds at that time. In fact, it was the dominant creation story. It was the Babylonian creation story. The, the name that um, we give to it is the Enuma Elish, and it was written about 1,200 years before Christ. And that was the dominant creation story. And it's quite horrific, actually. It's about two of, first of all, there are many gods in this creation story, uh, there's there's Absu, who's the freshwater god. There's Tiamat, the saltwater god. And they were husband and wife. And they um, produce offspring. And one day they are fighting and um, having an argument. And from there, it just deteriorates into absolute chaos. And from their um, family feud, the the earth is created out of someone's skull that has been split open. Wow. And, uh, and then human beings are introduced to be slaves to this multitude of gods. And the human beings are to serve the, 
the king, so to speak, without any question. And if people would like to look that up, you can Google it, Enuma Elish. People can look that up and read um, about that creation story. So from that creation story, um, we learn a couple of things. One, there are many gods, not one god, that these gods um, established order by means of superior force, that evil is prior to good, that there wasn't um, good and then a fall from goodness, but that there was just evil right to, from from the outset. And in actual fact, creation, as we see it, was a product out of a violent act. And uh, what we can deduce from that is God is violent, God is very short-tempted, and that human beings are born in that image and actually natural-born killers. <laughs> I mean, it's quite quite horrific. And unquestioning virtue to those in authority is the highest value for human beings. Now, that is the Babylonian creation story. Um, by all probability, the creation story in Genesis was written to counteract that story, to say, no, that story is not true. What that story is saying about God is false. What that story is saying about human beings is false. And so when we see it in the light of the Babylonian creation story, we see the biblical creation story correcting those falsehoods, namely that God is one. There's only one God. There's not a multitude of gods. And of course, that's, that's the central confession in uh, the Hebrew faith. Correct. So one God. The second is that this God is a loving God who creates creation out of love. Mm. Not out of animosity, not out of anger, and certainly not out of violence. Yeah. It was a loving act. Thirdly, human beings are created in the loving image of God. So we're not natural-born killers, as the Babylonian story would have it. We are natural-born lovers. Wow, that's a lovely image. Natural-born lovers. And... We can, we can conclude by saying that human beings are born in love, by love, and for love, yet with the freedom not to love. So the creation story is true, as we discussed last time. It is absolutely true in what it says about who God is and who human beings are, namely our identity. We are born in love, by love, and for love. Now, Dion, that's what I would call my still point. What do I mean? When you see a compass, a compass has true north. It doesn't matter which direction you hold that compass, it will always point to true north. That's right. Now, this creation story teaches us our true north, that thing which remains unchangeable regardless of what situation you and I find ourselves in. The, the true north is that God is love, and the scriptures testify to that, that God is love. The second aspect of that true north is who human beings are, that we are born in God's image, namely the image of love. So we are born in love, by love, and for love. Now, Dion, that is the deepest truth about God, that God is love. Whenever you listen to anybody speak about God, always ask, them the, ask yourself the question, does that sound like love or not? Test it with that question. God is love. 
Secondly, human beings are born in the image of, of love and, uh, and created to be loving. That's the deepest truth about those people who are listening. That's the deepest truth about you and I, that we are born in love, by love, and for love. If you are stirred by this message and would like to get in touch with us, please send us a text to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. For more audio and information on this series, please visit www.mannerandmercy.org. DNA, DNA, DNA with Dion and Alan. Now the question is, which creation story do you believe in? Do you believe in the, the Babylonian creation story or the Enuma Elish? Or do you believe in the biblical creation story as we have it in Genesis? Well, I would certainly say as a Christian, I would like to think that I believe in, in the, the biblical story. But, but I can see many elements in my life and in society around me that, that seem to favor the, the Babylonian creation story. Well, that's very honest of you, Dion, because for many of us, the Babylonian story is what we live out. We may say we believe in the Genesis creation story, but we enact the Babylonian story. I'll give you an example. The Babylonian story says that if you want order, you must use superior force. So when we say things like this, you know so-and-so. I mean, we all know so-and-so. <laughs> I know so-and-so. You know so-and-so. <laughs> all so-and-so needs to come right is is a bit of a smack. Yeah. You've said that before. Maybe you've thought it before about somebody. <laughs> I so certainly and so. have, sadly. Okay. Well, when we think like that, that so-and-so just needs a smack and then their life will come right, they just need a hiding, that is Babylonian thinking because that is saying I use superior force to correct someone, to bring, to bring order. It's placing our trust in force. Now, if you go into a DVD store, you'll find that, that most of the movies, certainly from Hollywood, their, their storyline is the Babylonian story. It's quite simple. They're goodies and they're baddies. And uh, the baddies are winning because they've got their superior force. And the goodies then work out their superior force. And finally, the movie ends with the goodies overcoming the baddies by using superior force. You can think of Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Uh, go ahead, make my day sort of thing, you know. <laughs> all of the westerns of old, all the movies that we see, um, Rocky, one, two, and three, Die Hard, one, two, and three, Terminator, one, two, and three. It's all about the goody overcoming the baddie with superior force at the end of the day. And that entrenches within us the storyline that says if you want to succeed, if you want to bring order or make right in the world, you need superior force. And so it draws us to trust in superior force. Did you know when I was a child, I used to read comic books. I don't know if you ever read um, the comic book of um, Popeye. Absolutely. Popeye and olive oil. And, that's, and Brutus, wasn't Brutus, it? Brutus, yeah. Brutus, that's, that's right. It. And every episode, Popeye used to get beaten up by Brutus, and then he'd remember, I must eat spinach. He'd eat spinach, and then he'd beat up Brutus. That's right. Until next episode. And so what do we learn from a young age? We learn that you just need this or that. In that case, it was spinach to be the superior weapon, and then you could beat up Brutus. What are we learning? 
We're learning that when we're faced with an enemy, if I'm smaller, I must run as fast as my little legs can carry me away until I get bigger, then I can come back and beat the one up. Yeah. It's my trust in force. The biblical creation story says, no, the real power, real force is love, forgiveness. God is love. We're called to be love. And so I come back to the question, which creation story do you believe in? The Babylonian story or the biblical story? Hmm. You know, and Alan, it's, it's remarkable to me when we look at the, the, the text in that way, just how rich this particular narrative in the Bible is, you know, how, how much deeper it is and, and how much it's got to teach us about where we are in the world today. You know, it's not just a flat little story about science and six days and what came first. This, this creation narrative teaches us things about God and humanity and the world and, you know, those four things that you encouraged us uh, to look at. The other thing that also strikes me is that you can see traces of the whole of the gospel when you look back. And, you know, when, when I think about this, I can say that would be the kind of message that Jesus would say amen to. Absolutely. Jesus placed his trust in love, in forgiving love, in merciful love, as opposed to um, placing his trust in the Babylonian story. Remember, he was tempted to use the Babylonian story. He said, I'm tempted to bring down 10,000 angels, in other words, to show superior force, but he withholds that. He says, no, the way to salvation is not the Babylonian way. It's the biblical creation story. So again, which story do we believe in? We may confess with our lips the biblical creation story, but are there any of us who carry a gun, hmm. who carry a weapon, who keep a gun under our pillow at night? If we do, we're placing our trust in force, in superior force, in this world that says kill or be killed, dog eat dog, so you better start eating first. Jesus actually says, I, I send you out not like wolves among sheep, but sheep among wolves. In other words, I send you out vulnerably. So the creation story teaches us we're born in love, by love, and for love, yet with the freedom not to love. That is our true north, that we must keep on reminding ourselves that that is what we need to give our lives to, give our hearts to, not simply believe in our head. Listen to more teachings and discussions at www.mannerandmercy.org or connect with us by texting a message to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. DNA, DNA, DNA with Dion and Alan. Now that particular reading of the creation narrative certainly, I mean, it resonates with me, and it, it seems to have quite a lot of personal insight for me as as a Christ follower. But um, you said earlier that that the Bible not only has a personal element, we've got to be careful that we don't privatize it; that it's not just about me privately. So, don't you want to say a little something about the the political element, where we zoom out and look at community? Okay, well, let's remind ourselves again of the personal element, that every single, what we learn from Genesis, as opposed to the Babylonian story, we learn from Genesis that every single human being is born in God's image. God's image is one of love. Therefore, every human being is born in love, by love, and for love, yet with the freedom not to love. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. When we look at one another, can we train ourselves to see that 
deepest truth about one another, that I see past the color of your skin, I see past your gender or your orientation or your age or anything like that. I look and I see someone born in love, by love and for love. That I see myself as someone born in love, by love and for love. In fact, I would recommend and encourage all of you to write on, on your bathroom mirror the words, I am born in love, by love and for love, because that is the deepest truth of who you are. Next time someone says to you, who are you? Introduce yourself to them. Say, hi, my name's Alan, and I'm born in love, by love and for love. Mm. That is more true than your profession. Like I said, your religion, even your color of skin, your belief, your culture, your political party. This is the heart of who you are, born in love, by love and for love yet with the freedom not to love. Now, you're quite right. We mustn't read Scripture in a private way. In a personal way, we claim that truth now for ourselves. We're born in love, by love, and for love. And now we, we read that same text from the angle of what does it mean for society. Now, someone once said that justice is love distributed. Hmm, that's very nice. Justice is love distributed. So if human beings are born in love, by love, and for love, then society as a whole is born in justice, by justice, and for justice, yet with the freedom not to be just. So society is designed to be just. When society is just, it is being that which God ordained society to be. Now, we have the freedom for society not to be just, and we see plenty of examples around that. You see, I can love you as an individual sitting right next to me here, hmm. but how do I love, for example, the people of Egypt, the people of Tunisia, the people of Zimbabwe, the people of Pakistan? How do I love them as a, as a group? I can't. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. But if I seek justice for them, meaning fairness and equality for them, that is how I can love them. That's how I distribute my love for them. So I, I'm born in love, by love, and for love. I'm called to love. I'm called to see you as somebody who embodies that love. But I'm also here to work for communities that I cannot even see for justice. Now, if human beings are born in the image of God, namely love. Society is also born in that image, namely of justice. And this is good news, that at the heart of society, God has designed us to be just. When society is unjust, when there are laws passed that are not just, that are not fair, that are discriminatory, those laws are going against the very core of how God has designed and set up society to be, namely one in justice. Let me give you an image, Dion. I want you to think of this huge granite ball. Mm -hmm. At the core of that ball is justice because society is born in the image of, of God. When this ball is designed, when it, when it grows and becomes unjust and people are being steamrolled by that ball in, in policies that are unfair and that in society, what you and I are called to do is to tap that granite ball with the hammer of truth and love. Now, that's a very small hammer compared to how big this granite ball is. And may, many people may say, you know what? You're foolish. You're never going to change. You're never going to break that ball. That injustice is going to stay forever. But what you and I know 
is at the core of that ball is something very pure of justice. So all we have to do is tap away and a fault line may, a crack may happen and the crack will run all the way to the center. Mm. So you and I don't have to have the strength to push that entire granite ball over. All we need is a little bit of truth, a little bit of love to keep tapping away and it will echo through the granite ball of injustice to the core of justice. Yeah, I tell you, that is just such a a powerful image, Alan, and uh, really adds a a whole new layer to this particular text. So as individuals born in love, by love and for love, and society in justice, by justice and, and for justice. And the one example that we've just lived through as a continent in the world, a vegetable grower in Tunisia set himself on fire because of the injustice. Mm. And what did that do? It just released a, a crack through that whole granite ball of injustice in the Middle East and brought about change that we've, we've never seen in that region before. Would you like to discuss this with us? Text us on plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred, or for more information, please visit www.mannerandmercy.org. DNA, DNA, DNA with Dion and Alan. You know, this way of of reading the Bible not only changes the text, but it it changes the whole way in which we read reality, the way in which we deal with ourselves and and with other people. And that image you gave of of the granite ball was just such a a powerful image. I don't know if you've you've got any other ways to to help us to understand uh, our role as, as individuals and as a collective, you know, group of Christians in the world. Well, that's right. It is a whole new, it's, it's a whole way, a biblical way of seeing reality. You know, often people say, but in the real world. Well, what I'm saying here is scripture tells us what the real, real world is like. The real world is created by God and who is God? God is love and love distributed is justice. Therefore, the world is created in justice, by justice and for justice. And where something ex- exists in society that is not just, it already has its days numbered. Mm. It already has its days numbered. Another illustration, the last segment I spoke of was the, the image of the, the granite ball. Another image may be a large tree. And we could say this tree of injustice. All right. But already the, the roots of that tree have been cut. All right. That you and I know because the real reality is one of justice. So it means that you and I can be bold to go and push against that tree of injustice, whatever, wherever that injustice is. It may be in our home or community or the state. We can push against it knowing that already the roots of that tree have been cut. It's also true with regard to us as individuals. The real truth about each one of you is that you are born in love, by love and for love. And if someone labels you or you label yourself something other than that, it is not true. And so this invites us to the real, real world. Now, the challenge to us is that when we look at one another, can we look at one another with eyes that that see that each one is born in the image of love and then relate to one another like that? Yeah, because of course the, the, 
the reality that so many people live according to is this untrue reality of the Babylonian story. And, you know, that's, that's why we are given this gift of Scripture, to help us to discover the truth of who God is and what God's creation is like. And as we engage with the text and with one another, we begin to change our way of being together in Wonderful. the world. Absolutely. One last thing about the text. The Babylonian story basically says the way things are is the way things will remain. Mm. It doesn't believe in transformation or change. The biblical story is filled with the possibility for change. In other words, there's hope that the way things are, the way you and I are, needn't remain the same. Now, many of us, let's go back to so-and-so. Many of us, we know so-and-so, and and we say so-and-so will never change. Have you ever said that? (laughs) So-and-so will never change? Well, we are thinking Babylonian when we say that. Why do you say that? Well, we are saying, as soon as we say so-and-so cannot change, we are saying that so-and-so is, we're not only judging so-and-so, we're actually judging God. Wow. At the same time, we're saying so-and-so is beyond the transformative reach of God. We're saying, God, you're very great. You created the cosmos, but so-and-so is beyond your reach to change. That is passing a judgment against God. Now, when we say it, then our prayer should be, instead of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, what we are in, what we're really doing is worshiping the past. We're saying, so-and-so's past is more powerful than the living God to transform her or him. So then we should be praying our past who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because in fact, many of us worship the past. We give credence to the past. We give power to the past far more than we do to the living God. That's the Babylonian way. The biblical way says, no, there is hope for all of us to change. The way things are needn't be the way things remain. So, you know, Alan, I really want to challenge our our listeners to say, go and read that section of of Scripture again, Genesis 1 to 3, and uh, keep those those four questions in mind. What does this tell me about God? What does it tell me about humanity? What does it tell me about creation and the relationships between them? And then obviously to take those two perspectives, the the perspective that's, that's personal but not private, and the perspective that's, that's political, that says some things for the world around us. Would you like to respond to this? Send us a text on plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred, or visit www.mannerandmercy.org. So, Alan, you've been telling us that God is love, and uh, you know I believe that it, it, it resonates with me. But one of the the problems I have, I mean, even in Genesis that we've been concentrating on, is that we encounter instances where God doesn't seem quite so loving. And uh, you know, one of the the best examples, perhaps, in Genesis is the story of Noah. So, how could we read that that particular story from this perspective? Well, thank you for introducing the story of of Noah's Ark because it's such a wonderful illustration of the fact that God really is love. Now, the the authors of the story are taking a risk. What they do is they they paint God in the way 
that the popular understanding of God um, consisted of, namely that God was a wrathful, vengeful, violent God, pretty much like a Babylonian God, as we've discussed in previous programs. So they they say that God wipes everyone else with a flood and, and spares just uh, a handful. And then we read these incredible words that God says, I will remember my covenant uh, that is between me and you and every living creature. And when the bow is in the clouds, now what we call a rainbow was in actual fact a bow, a bow meaning a weapon, mm. like a bow and arrow. So the story is basically the disarmament of God. Mm. It's God saying, um, I don't know if you remember the story where um, there's, there's evil, there's violence, and God is so upset that then we read that God wipes everybody out. But no sooner has the flood receded, people are, again, wicked as can be. So that violence didn't work. And what the authors do, they take a great risk. They say, we're going to write this story um, characterizing God in the popular understanding that God is violent and wrathful. And even in this story, God actually sees the pointlessness of violence. And God says, you know what? It didn't work. I try to get rid of evil and wickedness, but it didn't work. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang up my bow like a boxer hangs up his gloves. Mm. God hangs up God's bow and says, you know what? I'm never going to use violence to try and rid the world of wickedness ever again. I'm going to do it through relationship. Wow. I mean, that, that really is a, a, a beautiful image of, of God. I, you know, I've never thought of that particular story in, in that way. And uh, it does, you know, if we come back to those four questions and we, we read that and say, what does this tell us about God, about humanity, about creation, and about the relationship between them? That gives a, a completely different perspective on the biblical text and its intention. I think that's Jesus would say amen to that kind that, of reading. I'm glad you, you brought in Jesus there because remember, that's what we got to ask. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. If you cannot imagine Jesus wiping people out with a flood, which I cannot imagine, Jesus even forgave the people crucifying him. So Jesus would not be wiping out an entire community or nation with a flood. So if we cannot see Jesus doing it, we cannot see God doing it because we believe God and Jesus are one and the same. In this way, we're seeing that God hangs up his bow and says no more. Violence, God can't even make good use out of violence. Mm. And if God can't make use out, a good use out of violence, then none of us can. So we should all hang up our bows, hang up our knives, hang up our guns, hang up our, our bombs, and do the Jesus thing. That begin to, to pray for change and work for change, placing our trust in love as the most powerful power in this world. And of course, also, as we said, you know, when you go back from the, the private to the, the political, you know, working for justice. And I think, you know, Ellen, the thing that's becoming clearer and clearer for me with this way of, of reading the scripture is that, you know, we sometimes get so caught up in the smallness of fact that we miss the big truth. And, and this is another way of, of reading this text where we can see truth is bigger than fact. Absolutely. Truth is larger than fact. And so the story of, of Noah's Ark is true. 
It's absolutely true. I don't know if it happened that way or not, but it's true. What is the truth that we learn? We learn about a God who will know, who, who will who will not trust in force to bring about change uh, in this world. That will 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 trust relationship, and we're going to move into that when we see the relationship soon. With that, God begins with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and uh, as God asks for partners and says through partnership. I want to transform you and the world. That sounds fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to moving into that. Listen to more teachings and discussions at www.mannerandmercy.org or connect with us by texting a message to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. Well, thanks for joining us. We've been talking about the fact that God is love and that God's way to transform the world is through love and relationship. But, um, Alan, that's, that's quite a, a, a sort of ethereal thing. I mean, how do, we, how do we begin to nail that down? What does it practically mean for us as Christians? Well, let's have a look. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, if you go and read the, the last chapter, well, chapter 11 of Genesis, you will see it ends in death, mm-hmm. literally, barrenness. And barrenness in the Bible is more than a biological condition. It's a theological statement. It's saying, you see, you human beings, you cannot bring life, mm. only with God. And chapter 12 begins, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless, and it goes on like that, right? So the Lord enters into relationship with, with Abram and it's a covenant relationship. It's a promised relationship. And I don't know if you noticed there, there are two significant aspects of this relationship. The one is God calls Abram into partnership. God actually needs a partner. Mm, that's, that's remarkable. Yes. Now, it was St. Augustine who said these words, without God, we cannot. Without God, we cannot. Mm-hmm. But without us, God will not. <clears throat> that's God, very nice. God can get on without us. God can do anything God wants without us, but God chooses not to. Why? Because God has chosen us to be in partnership with God. Now, if it's, a, if it's a real partnership, which we trust it is, this is not a token partnership, then think of a business deal um, in a partnership. Someone brings the money, some brings the expertise or the trade, or, and the, the outcome will only work if both participants, both partners, bring to the table what they promised. Mm. And so God has a dream for this world, to mend this world, to draw all of human beings into relationship, loving relationship with one another and with God. That's God's overall dream. And God has said now that I will do this through partnership. In other words, I need you human beings to do this with me. Now, that's remarkable. It's remarkable because, wow, God has faith in us. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It is. It, it blows my mind that the God who could do absolutely anything that God would want to do chooses not to do it alone. 
That's right. I mean, and, and that God would trust me, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's a, a particularly exceptional thing. Well, exactly, that God actually, hear this, God actually has faith in us long before we have faith in God. Yeah. God believes in us long before we believe in God. Mm. Now, that's incredible. It is. And I want to give you this picture. Think of a, a parent going out into the garden and, and planting new seeds for the, for the season. Mm-hmm. Or bulbs, plants, flowers. Now, an, an adult could do that quite quickly. Now, imagine that adult has a four, five-year-old, six-year-old child and says, come and do this with me. Mm. Now, we know what's going to happen. It's <laughs> going to take a little longer. The child's going to mess around in the soil. Maybe spray or sprinkle the water somewhere, right? It's going to be a little bit more messy, take a little longer. But the parent's enjoyment is that we're doing it together. It's not all about efficiency. It's not all about how quickly we can do this. The parent actually wants to share this moment with their child. Can you imagine God doing that? That God actually could straighten things out. But God actually chooses to do it with us, trusting that we have something meaningful to bring. And of course, you know the the other element of that is when when the flowers come out, it's it's a it's a shared joy. You know, both parent and child can say, "This is something we accomplished together." That's right. And uh, you know, I, I suppose that's what what we read in the New Testament that God calls us to to be His partners in in creating this new kingdom, this new heaven and and new earth. There's a verse in Hebrews. That uh, they said something to that effect, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I, I looked it up in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 1. And uh, let me just see if I can find it. It says, brothers and sisters, you are holy partners in a heavenly calling. Isn't that amazing? Holy partners in a heavenly calling. So that's what you and I are involved with, a heavenly calling. And that's what we call to be holy partners with God. And Abraham was the first partner that God calls into covenant relationship. Abram and Sarah, together, they obediently leave their parents' house and and follow. Alan, so I see that this story of God partnering with Abraham is is a, a wonderful image of many such partnerships that we see throughout the Bible. And uh, when we read the text in this way, boy, it, it, it gets me excited about my role in, in God's partnership to heal and transform the world. Would you like to discuss this with us? Text us on plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. Or for more information, please visit www.mannerandmercy.org. DNA, DNA, DNA with Dion and Alan. Ellen, so I'd like us to take this image of partnership with God in the story of Abraham a little bit further and um, see what we can learn from that for ourselves and for the role that God has for us in the world. Well, we said that God has faith in us and that God relies on us, that we are God's partners. And that is an awesome, awesome responsibility that we have. And it, and it literally comes down to this, that if you and I are not playing our part as partners, the job of God is going to take that much longer to be complete, that we are actually frustrating God, that God wants to heal this world. And if you and I are not doing the 
the things that that God is wanting us to be doing in this world, namely to be caring for the least, to be sharing, to making sure that there's justice in this world, that um, that we really are frustrating, frustrating God. Now, God calls Abram, and Abram leaves a lot of things. Now, I want to suggest that when you and I enter into partnership with God, we're going to have stuff to leave behind. Mm. We're going to, we, we have to leave stuff behind. We're not going to be able to fulfill what God wants us to do without leaving things behind. Now, Abram left his father's house, Abram and Sarah. Now, what does that mean for, for us? What does our parents' house symbolize, symbolize for us? What do they believe? What is our culture? What are the things that we've been taught that we actually may have to leave behind? Sometimes we've come from a house that's full of prejudice. And you know what? If we want to be God's holy partners, we're going to have to leave that prejudice behind. Mm. If some of us have come from a home that's been obsessed with making more and more money about future security, you know what? If we're going to be faithful, holy partners of God, we're going to have to leave that stuff behind. We're going to have to leave behind sometimes even relationships. Yeah. Now, God says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And that's almost become a a little bit of a cliche, blessed to be a blessing. Mm. I wonder how we could uh, understand that. That it seems to me that when God says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to others, God is saying to Abram, now listen, Abram and Sarah, I'm not only going to come to you, I don't only want to come to you, I want to come through you Hmm. to others. You see, nowhere in the Bible does God just show up for one individual's sake. When God shows up to an individual, God always says, I want to send you to so-and-so. God always wants to come through you and not simply to you. And that's very important. If God comes to us and we're simply going to hold on to that experience of God coming to us for our own sake, that experience will die. But if we allow God to come through us, so for example, God in forgiving me wants then me to share that forgiveness with others. God in blessing me wants me to bless others, blessed to be a blessing. So God is always on the move, not only to us, but through us. Now, now notice, this is beautiful. It, it says, blessed to be a blessing, and it's for all nations, all nations. We are not allowed to place any restrictions on God coming through us. We can't say that God's going to come through me to so-and-so and not others. God has a world vision. Mm. God wants to come to all people. God has no favorites, Dion. God does not discriminate. And, and we are not to have favorites, and we are not to discriminate. The moment we discriminate, the moment we reduce God's mission in and through our life. Yeah, I mean, I, and you know, sadly, I, I mean, I've seen it in my own ministry and in the ministries of of others that sometimes we get so caught up in in trying to facilitate an encounter with God that we forget that God encounters us when God is on the move, 
when God's wanting to move through us into the lives of others. And, you know, I see it particularly with some of the programs that we see on TV and some of the, you know, folks who release DVDs and books that so much of what they're trying to do is, is encourage the individual to have an encounter with God when, when in actual fact that's missing the point. We should be seeking to be in partnership with a God who wants to move through us in, into the world and to bring transformation and healing to others. Exactly. And for example, this is a, a challenge to the local church, that, that as a local church, we need to be asking, how does God want to come through us? Not just how does God want to come to us, but how does God want to come to us to encounter others? And when we say others, everybody that there shouldn't be any restrictions placed on our ministry in this world at all. So we shouldn't be saying that we're going to care for this one or that one because this is what they believe or this is um, their connection to the church or not. We should be caring indiscriminately. We should be scattering that seed wildly across everyone. So, so that everyone can have a taste of God coming through us. That's forgiveness for all, mercy for all, justice for all, fairness for all, gentleness for all, generosity for all. Mm. And of course, you know, that, that passage which you read, Genesis chapter 12, uh, speaks of the fact that God chose Abraham to, to be someone through whom God would come into the whole world. So I look forward to seeing how we can unpack that a little bit more and and see what else we can read from the Bible about this partnership with God. If you are stirred by this message and would like to get in touch with us, please send us a text to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. For more audio and information on this series, please visit www.mannerandmercy.org. God's partnership with Abraham is a wonderful example of how God longs to partner with us and come to us and through us into the world. But let's move on a little bit further to Exodus and let's talk a little bit about another person in the Bible that God partnered with or who partnered with God. Let's talk a bit about Moses. Yeah, that's a great example of of a partnership that God hears the cries of um, the people, the Hebrews. And just by the way, the word Hebrews means vulnerable peoples, peoples on the margins, peoples left out. The word Hebrew doesn't mean nation state as of yet. That that only happens later in the Bible. So when we read that God set the Hebrews free, it's yes, the descendants of Abram, of Isaac, of Jacob, but also inclusive of other peoples who are left out on the marginals, um, on the margins, people who were oppressed by the Egyptian stroke Pharaoh regime. So God hears the cries of these vulnerable people, the marginalized peoples, and wants to set them free. But God does that in partnership. God doesn't do it on God's own. So God has to call Moses. Now, remember, Moses was on the run. Moses was wanted by Pharaoh. Now you've got God saying, (laughs) I want you, Moses, and I want you to go to Pharaoh. And uh, so God, God hears, God calls, And then remember that whole interaction between Moses and God, Moses saying, I'm not able to speak and that sort of thing. It's quite ironic. He's willing to argue with God, all right, about not being able to speak, but he He doesn't want to face Pharaoh. He doesn't want to face Pharaoh. And that's so true of us. When we are called into partnership with God, 
Remember that Hebrews lesson that you read in Holy Partners? Mm. We Sometimes we are resistant because we fear others more than we fear God. Mm. Mm. We fear others more than we fear God. So God calls Moses into, into partnership and says, Moses, I want you to set my people free. Who are God's people? God's people are the Hebrews, mm. meaning the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, the downcast, the downtrodden, though that is God's people. And I have a hunch, Dion, that whenever God calls us into partnership, God is always wanting us to set the Hebrews, namely the poor and vulnerable, free. You know, Alan, just to pull it back again to that the difference between the, the biblical creation narrative and the Babylonian creation narrative, we can see some of those elements coming through again, you know, that we were created in love, by love, and for love, and that society is created in justice, by justice, and for justice. That's the very nature of God. And that, I mean, when you read the Bible from that perspective, this makes absolute sense. God calls us in love, by love, and for love to work for justice for for God's people, the, the marginalized and the poor. Great. That's exactly right. And if we if we look at that first chapter of, of Exodus, remember I spoke about the, the granite of injustice in the world, but right at its core, it's born injustice, by justice, and for justice. We see now how that granite ball is developed. If you read in Exodus, we'll see the Pharaoh, which was the, the king of the time, um, died and was replaced by a new pharaoh. And this pharaoh was forgetful of what God had done through Joseph. Mm. Remember the feeding of through the seven lean years, the seven fat years. So forgetful of God. But also when when this pharaoh looked out and he saw that the, the, the Hebrews had become numerous, he was fearful. So whenever we fearful of people and forgetful of God, we set up a pyramid. Mm. And it's normally a pyramid of domination and oppression with ourselves at the top, with others at the bottom. Mm. And that's a structure of injustice. So that structure, that granite ball, is what God longs to turn on its, on its head. So here's a lesson. When you and I are fearful of others, remember we're born in love, by love, and for love, and everybody is born in love and by love and for love, and love casts out fear. Love is the antithesis of fear, but fear is also the opposite of love. So just as love casts out fear, fear casts out love. So when I'm fearful of you, Dion, I'm, I can't love you. Yeah. So when the Pharaoh was fearful, he was unloving. Mm. At the same time, he was forgetful of God. Now, when we're forgetful of God, we begin to think we are God. Mm. And not just think that we are God, we want others to treat us like God. Mm. So whenever a leader is fearful of people and forgetful of God, they will set up a structure of domination that will end up oppressing and hurting, belittling, destroying people. Those are the Hebrews, namely the poor and the vulnerable. God hears their cries and God calls us into partnership to deal with that structure of injustice set up by fear and forgetfulness. Yeah, you know, when, when I hear that, then Hebrews 3 that we read earlier, just it has such meaning. It says, brothers and sisters, you are holy partners in a heavenly calling. 
And uh, that, that just gives you know, such a, a real sense to what we are to do. But we're going to be sent to Pharaoh. It's not an easy job. It's dangerous to be in partnership with God, although it's the best thing in all the world. If you are stirred by this message and would like to get in touch with us, please send us a text to plus two seven seven eight two seven eight five three hundred. For more audio and information on this series, please visit www.mannerandmercy.org.